host Toby Jenkins
This is a public service broadcast going out on all modulated signals, analog, digital and quantum within 10 kilometers of this COS outpost. The outpost ID is RR171011 and the outpost operator is me, Toby Jenkins. The outpost coordinates can be obtained with this signal. The outpost is equipped with provisions and medical supplies and has a security rating of 22.232%. The doors are open to the light. The sun is on the horizon. Clarionet, noun. An instrument of torture operated by a person with cotton in his ears. There are two instruments that are worse than a clarionet. Two clarionets. <laughs> In a small cafe on the streets of Dublin sat Grog and Bub, waiting and watching. People passed them, but none took notice of their somewhat ominous presence. Both were dressed in black coats, the appropriate attire for their current situation. Bub was nervous, his beady eyes darting to each and every face as it walked past. Grog, the superior of the two, was staring in silence at the entrance to the park across the street. His arms were folded, and his face was set in an expression of deep disgust. Flurmans, he said. Waste of time and effort, if you ask me, while he's made them as a mystery. Bub said nothing, for he was too busy scanning the street. His leg had started bouncing as it always did when he was nervous. Will you stop that? snapped Grog. You're going tiresome, Bub. Bub apologized, but couldn't stop. He was too nervous. Instead, he simply moved his leg further away from the table. Who do you think they'll send? he asked. Nobody important, came Grog's reply. We're not on the most wanted list, so we shouldn't have any trouble fighting our way out. Besides, we're far more prepared. See him, I'll figure he's a pedophile. No, said Bob. Perhaps an adulterer. Maybe. Oh, girl in the red sweater. Stripper. Oh, a lot. That man with glasses is a klepto and a pervert, I read. Oh, pervert, maybe. But he's too much of a loser to be a klepto. They continued this game to pass the time and ease the tension. After about five minutes, the two froze. A tall person with dark hair and electric blue eyes had approached their table. He too was wearing a black coat, but his had silver buttons and white cuffs. At his side, attached to his belt, was a sword, double-sided, with diamonds in the hilt, and a large sapphire in the pommel. Though it was housed in a simple black and silver sheath, Grog and Bob understood with tremendous apprehension the power of that weapon and its master. Michael, stammered Grog. They sent you. No, however, seeing as I'm already here and aware of your crimes, I may as well serve notice. Serve notice? asked Bob. 
And are you going to try and catch us? You're already caught. You simply haven't been made aware of the fact. How can we already be caught? Asked Grog. Omnipresence has its benefits. Forgot about that, said Bob. It's really not fair, you know. It was never going to be fair. You lot made the choice to rebel. Oh, oh shut up with that righteous nonsense, Grog exclaimed. Just to done with that. Very well. Grog Amasi and Titherabob, you are hereby found guilty of abuse of power on three counts. First, the illegal possession and murder of two humans. Second, the unauthorized influencing of a 12-year-old girl. And third, the unauthorized revelation of yourselves to a human, the same 12-year-old. Impressive for two such as ourselves, though, said Grog. We'll earn to them registered tempters or possessors. Exactly. Which brings me to your sentence. Forthwith, you shall be sent back and demoted. To what? Sufferers. What? shouted Bob. For how long? Eternity. No, said Grog with sudden urgency. You can't this. That's about harsh, isn't it? Bringing about the death of a human through possession is a crime that demands the highest sentence. Please, pleaded Grog. Can't we work something out? Ah, there's always a deal with demons, eh? And always a catch. No deal, Grog Massey. Goodbye. Michael drew his sword and deftly decapitated the two demons where they stood. They disappeared in what is best described as wisps of black smoke, back from whence they came. Nobody on the street saw a thing, except a very frightened Wiccan who had just ordered coffee. Michael turned to her and fixed her with a piercing gaze. Don't believe the lie. Search for the truth, and you will find it. He then whipped around and proceeded down the street, leaving the now former Wiccan terrified in her seat. Michael walked across the street to a park. There was to be a parade that day, and he had been sent to ensure that there was no unwelcome participants in the event. He walked through the park, checking everywhere for minor troublemakers. They had to be dealt with and sent away before his real assignment could be completed. He dealt with another two demons, gremlins, that were attempting to sabotage the equipment. They were authorized to be there, so he just sent them back to be reassigned. He found a tempter and his charge in a tree, watching some girls frolicking below. Michael gave the tempter leave for the day. After a few more brief encounters with minor demons, Michael approached a person who was sitting on a park bench, awaiting the coming parade. This person was dressed in a black pinstripe suit with a red shirt and a black tie. His chiseled face bore a dark, perfectly trimmed goatee, and the only thing darker than his hair were his eyes, which likened themselves to black holes. He wore a bowler hat on his head, and his shoes were polished to a shine and he wore a red rose in place of a corsage. Hello, Michael. I presume you are here for me. You presume correctly, Lucy. Don't you dare call me that. 
I can call you by whatever name I wish. What authority do you have to give me orders? The same that allows me to destroy you. Ah, but to destroy me, you'd have to fight me. And we both know how that will end. Yes, with him interfering. It's never a fair fight anyway. You always cheat. And so do you. Why are you here, Michael? On his orders. And why has he sent you? <clears throat> to keep you away from the parade. He knows what you're planning and he won't let it happen. So he sent you to stop me? Correct. Do I have to leave? Yes. When? No. Very well. As the man in the suit stood up, he was suddenly enveloped in a brief but furious fireball. He disappeared for a moment and reappeared behind Michael in another flash of fire, this time wielding a crystalline sword with a pitch black blade. Michael immediately drew his sword and engaged his adversary. The ensuing conflict was furious. The two were evenly matched as swordsmen, moving with perfect footwork and deadly accuracy. The strikes were swift, the parries swifter, neither gaining advantage by skill alone. The man in the suit quickly employed his more sinister powers, hurling fire and shadow which were dissipated by bursts of light from Michael's hands. Very soon, the two took to the sky, fighting ferociously above the oncoming parade. Blow after blow was met with keen defense on either side, and their clash was surrounded by a storm of light and fire and shadow akin to a violent thunderstorm. Suddenly, the man in the suit sent a wave of shadow which covered Michael in darkness. Blinded, Michael suddenly felt the man's fist in his chest, and he was driven into the ground. The man in the suit stood up and raised his sword, pinning Michael to the floor with his foot. That's enough. The man in the suit looked around wildly. An old man was standing a little way to their left, fixing the man in the suit with a terrible stare. He wore a white shirt and white shorts, held up by a thin black belt with a plain silver buckle. His white hair was long, down to his shoulders, and his face clean-shaven. Upon his head he wore a Panama hat, and beneath it his eyes seemed to shine with a brilliant electric blue glow. You have no right to be here. Go. The man in the suit spat at the old man and disappeared in a ball of fire once again. He did not return. The old man approached Michael and helped him up. You could have continued fighting him. Could have won. Yes, but there was no need. Your conflict served its purpose. Let's go. And with that, the two disappeared in bursts of lightning, traveling upwards into the sky. The parade continued as though nothing had happened, for nobody had seen or even heard the conflict that had raged moments before. None, except a now really former Wiccan, who had followed Michael since he had spoken to her at that cafe across the street. Don't believe the lie. Search for the truth, and you will find it.
Confidant. Confidante! Noun. One entrusted by A with the secrets of B, confided by him to C. An ode to truth. Kind of. By a nomad soul. This is a sentence, a statement, an objectively verifiable fact. This is not a lie. This is not a whole universe waiting to be born, if only in the mind of a lonely little man and only for a moment. Yet this is still not a lie. Could this perhaps be speculation? A pondered ponderance pondering the prominence of pondering preposterosity? Perhaps, perhaps not. This couldn't be a lie, even if it tried. Is this a question? Does it need to be? Is it even worth asking? Who could even begin to fathom how to answer it? Is this still not a lie? I'm not sure anymore. Indeed, I don't think anyone has considered the means by which we define truth. Is it distinguishable from fact? Is it presented or is it told? Is it sold from the sidewalks and street corners and markets and squares? Has it ever managed to leak to the airwaves? Could it possibly be found in the home? And what of the wonder of language, hmm? With all of its tools and trades, hyperbole, the best goddamn thing ever. Metaphor, the rock upon which our sacred texts were inscribed. Similes, like metaphors, but lazy. Euphemism, the civilized answer to anything too racy. Sarcasm, the unhappiest form of wit. And wit, the favorite weapon of the intellectual arts. Through one lens, these are all lies. And through another, a truth is revealed. Is truth a matter of perspective, then? If it is, then it must be quantum. Look away and it may change. Probably. Could there perhaps be many truths? A collective of sorts, all sorts, a whole bunch of elusive little bastards, shy, flighty things, an enlightenment of truths. <laughs> How would they be structured? Would some be more valued than others? Would half-truths be found in the fault? If there is... Is there... Is there a truest of true truths? A truth that all truths try to be? If this is true, there must be a lie. The lie of lying lies, so sly that it could unseat even the truest of true truths. If this is so, how could anyone know where to begin to believe? See, all that is true is real. And not all that is real is true. But all that is true is more precious than the stars could ever behold. And in all this confusion, all this nonsense and doubt, one thing above all else is clear. The pursuit of truth is an adventure that can only end with death. Conversation. Noun. 
a fair for the display of the minor mental commodities, each exhibitor being too intent upon the arrangement of his own wares to observe those of his neighbor. This episode of Radio Ragnarok featured What Never Happened by Your Nomad Soul, read by the author, as well as the songs Ode to Truth, kind of, by Your Nomad Soul, and Mountain Water by Melanie Kerr, with music by Your Nomad Soul. There were also excerpts from The Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Bierce, read by Your Nomad Soul, and all content in this broadcast is public domain, with the exception of Mountain Water by Melanie Kerr, which has been used here with permission. Thank you for listening, and be safe out there. This is Toby Jenkins, signing off.